Welcome to the 3ABN Australia Radio Book Reading Program. The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen White, is an inspirational account of the life and ministry of Jesus. What you are about to hear is a dramatised audio version of this book, created by Nancy Hamilton Myers. To download your free copy, visit thedesireofagesproject.com. Listen now as Nancy continues to read from The Desire of Ages. The Desire of Ages, Chapter 53, The Last Journey from Galilee. As the close of his ministry drew near, there was a change in Christ's manner of labor. Heretofore, he had sought to shun excitement and publicity. He had refused the homage of the people and had passed quickly from place to place when the popular enthusiasm in his favor seemed kindled beyond control. Again and again he had commanded that none should declare him to be the Christ. At the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, his journey to Jerusalem was made swiftly and secretly. When urged by his brothers to present himself publicly as the Messiah, his answer was, My time is not yet come. He made his way to Jerusalem unobserved and entered the city unannounced and unhonored by the multitude. But not so with his last journey. He had left Jerusalem for a season because of the malice of the priests and rabbis, but he now set out to return, traveling in the most public manner by a secretarious route, and preceded by such an announcement of his coming as he had never made before. He was going forward to the scene of his great sacrifice, and to this the attention of the people must be directed. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. As the eyes of all Israel had been directed to the uplifted serpent, the symbol appointed for their healing, so all eyes must be drawn to Christ, the sacrifice that brought salvation to the lost world. It was a false conception of the Messiah's work and a lack of faith in the divine character of Jesus that had led his brothers to urge him to present himself publicly to the people at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, in a spirit akin to this, the disciples would have prevented him from making the journey to Jerusalem. They remembered his words concerning what was to befall him there. They knew the deadly hostility of the religious leaders, and they would fain have dissuaded their master from going thither. To the heart of Christ, it was a bitter task to press his way against the fears, disappointment and unbelief of his beloved disciples. It was hard to lead them forward to the anguish and despair that awaited them at Jerusalem. And Satan was at hand to press his temptations upon the Son of Man. Why should he now go to Jerusalem to certain death? All around him were souls hungering for the bread of life. On every hand were suffering ones, waiting for his word of healing. The work to be wrought by the gospel of his grace was just begun, and he was full of the vigor of manhood's prime. Why not go forward to the vast fields of the world with the words of his grace, the touch of his healing power? Why not take to himself the joy of giving light and gladness to those darkened and sorrowing millions? 
Why leave the harvest gathering to his disciples, so weak in faith, so dull of understanding, so slow to act? Why face death now and leave the work in its infancy? The foe who in the wilderness had confronted Christ assailed him now with fierce and subtle temptations. Had Jesus yielded for a moment? Had he changed his course in the least particular to save himself? Satan's agencies would have triumphed and the world would have been lost. But Jesus had steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The one law of his life was the Father's will. In the visit to the temple in his boyhood, he had said to Mary, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? At Cana, when Mary desired him to reveal his miraculous power, his answer was, Mine hour is not yet come. With the same words, he replied to his brothers when they urged him to go to the feast. But in God's great plan, the hour had been appointed for the offering of himself for the sins of men, and that hour was soon to strike. He would not fail nor falter. His steps are turned toward Jerusalem, where his foes have long plotted to take his life. Now he will lay it down. He set his face steadfastly to go to persecution, denial, rejection, condemnation, and death. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the people refused to receive him because he was on his way to Jerusalem. This they interpreted as meaning that Christ showed a preference for the Jews, whom they hated with intense bitterness. Had he come to restore the temple and worship upon Mount Gizurim, they would gladly have received him. But he was going to Jerusalem and they would show him no hospitality. Little did they realize that they were turning from their doors the best gift of heaven. Jesus invited men to receive him. He asked favors at their hands that he might come near to them to bestow the richest blessings. For every favor manifested toward him, he requited a more precious grace. But all was lost to the Samaritans, because of their prejudice and bigotry. James and John, Christ's messengers, were greatly annoyed at the insult shown to their Lord. They were filled with indignation because he had been so rudely treated by the Samaritans whom he was honoring by his presence. They had recently been with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and had seen him glorified by God and honored by Moses and Elijah. This manifest dishonor on the part of the Samaritans should not, they thought, be passed over without marked punishment. Coming to Christ, they reported to him the words of the people, telling him that they had even refused to give him a night's lodging. They thought that a grievous wrong had been done him, and seeing Mount Carmel in the distance where Elijah has slain the false prophets, they said, Wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? They were surprised to see that Jesus was pained by their words, and still more surprised as his rebuke fell upon their ears. Ye know not 
what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And he went to another village. It is no part of Christ's mission to compel men to receive him. It is Satan and men actuated by his spirit that seek to compel the conscience. Under a pretense of zeal for righteousness, men who are confederate with evil angels bring suffering upon their fellow men in order to convert them to their ideas of religion. But Christ is ever showing mercy, ever seeking to win by the revealing of his love. He can admit no rival in the soul, nor accept of partial service, but he desires only voluntary service, the willing surrender of the heart under the constraint of love. There can be no more conclusive evidence that we possess the spirit of Satan than the disposition to hurt and destroy those who do not appreciate our work or who act contrary to our ideas. Every human being, in body, soul, and spirit, is the property of God. Christ died to redeem all. Nothing can be more offensive to God than for men, through religious bigotry, to bring suffering upon those who are the purchase of the Saviour's blood. And he arose from thence, and cometh into the coasts of Judea by the farther side of Jordan, and the people resort unto him again, and... As he was wont, he taught them again. A considerable part of the closing months of Christ's ministry was spent in Puria, the province of the farther side of Jordan from Judea. Here the multitude thronged his steps as in his early ministry in Galilee, and much of his former teaching was repeated. As he had sent out the twelve, so he appointed seventy others and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whether he himself was about to come. These disciples had been for some time with him in training for their work. When the twelve were sent out on their first separate mission, other disciples accompanied Jesus in his journey through Galilee. Thus they had the privilege of intimate association with him and direct personal instruction. Now this larger number also were to go forth on a separate mission. The directions to the seventy were similar to those that had been given to the twelve, but the command to the twelve not to enter into any city of the Gentiles or of the Samaritans was not given to the seventy. Though Christ had just been repulsed by the Samaritans, his love toward them was unchanged. When the seventy went forth in his name, they visited, first of all, the cities of Samaria. The Saviour's own visit to Samaria and later the commendation of the Good Samaritan and the grateful joy of that leper, a Samaritan, who alone of the ten returned to give thanks to Christ, were full of significance to the disciples. The lesson sank deep into their hearts. In his commission to them just before his ascension, Jesus mentioned Samaria with Jerusalem and Judea as the places where they were first to preach the gospel. This commission his teaching had prepared them to fulfill. When in their master's name they went to Samaria, they found the people ready to receive them. The Samaritans had heard of Christ's words of commendation and his works of mercy for men of their nation. 
they saw that, notwithstanding their rude treatment of him, he had only thoughts of love toward them, and their hearts were one. After his ascension, they welcomed the Saviour's messengers, and the disciples gathered a precious harvest from among those who had once been their bitterest enemies. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the dimly burning flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. In sending out the seventy, Jesus bade them, as he had bidden the twelve, not to urge their presence where they were unwelcome. Into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, he said, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. They were not to do this from motives of resentment or through wounded dignity, but to show how grievous a thing it is to refuse the Lord's message or his messengers. To reject the Lord's servants is to reject Christ himself. I say unto you, Jesus added, that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Then his mind reverted to the Galilean towns where so much of his ministry had been spent. In deeply sorrowful accents he exclaimed, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. To those busy towns about the Sea of Galilee, heaven's richest blessings had been freely offered. Day after day the Prince of Life had gone in and out among them. The glory of God, which prophets and kings had longed to see, had shone upon the multitudes that thronged the Saviour's steps. Yet they had refused the heavenly gift. With a great show of prejudice, the rabbis had warned the people against receiving the new doctrines taught by this new teacher, for his theories and practices were contrary to the teachings of the fathers. The people gave credence to what the priests and Pharisees taught, in place of seeking to understand the word of God for themselves. They honored the priests and rulers instead of honoring God and rejected the truth that they might keep their own traditions. Many had been impressed and almost persuaded, but they did not act upon their convictions and were not reckoned on the side of Christ. Satan presented his temptations until the light appeared as darkness. Thus many rejected the truth that would have proved the saving of the soul. The true witness says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Every warning, reproof, and entreaty in the word of God, all through his messengers, is a knock at the door of the heart. It is the voice of Jesus asking for entrance. 
With every knock unheeded, the disposition to open becomes weaker. The impressions of the Holy Spirit, if disregarded today, will not be as strong tomorrow. The heart becomes less impressible and lapses into a perilous unconsciousness of the shortness of life and of the great eternity beyond. Our condemnation in the judgment will not result from the fact that we have been in error, but from the fact that we have neglected heaven-sent opportunities for learning what is truth. Like the apostles, the Seventy had received supernatural endowments as a seal of their mission. When their work was completed, they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Jesus answered, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. The scenes of the past and the future were presented to the mind of Jesus. He beheld Lucifer as he was first cast out from the heavenly places. He looked forward to the scenes of his own agony, when before all the worlds the character of the deceiver should be unveiled. He heard the cry. He heard the cry, It is finished! Announcing that the redemption of the lost race was forever made certain that heaven was made eternally secure against the accusations, the deceptions, the pretensions that Satan would instigate. Beyond the cross of Calvary, with its agony and shame, Jesus looked forward to the great final day when the prince of the power of the air will meet his destruction in the earth, so long marred by his rebellion. Jesus beheld the work of evil forever ended, and the peace of God filling heaven and earth. Henceforth, Christ's followers were to look upon Satan as a conquered foe. Upon the cross, Jesus was to gain the victory for them, that victory he desired them to accept as their own. Behold, he said, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. The omnipotent power of the Holy Spirit is the defense of every contrite soul. Not one that in penitence and faith has claimed his protection will Christ permit to pass under the enemy's power. The Savior is by the side of his tempted and tried ones. With him there can be no such thing as failure loss, impossibility, or defeat. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. When temptations and trials come, do not wait to adjust all the difficulties, but look to Jesus, your helper. There are Christians who think and speak altogether too much about the power of Satan. They think of their adversary, they pray about him, they talk about him, and he looms up greater and greater in their imagination. It is true that Satan is a powerful being, but, thank God, we have a mighty Saviour who cast out the evil one from heaven. Satan is pleased when we magnify his power. Why not talk of Jesus? Why not magnify his power and his love? The rainbow of promise encircling the throne on high is an everlasting testimony that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life.
It testifies to the universe that God will never forsake his people in their struggle with evil. It is an assurance to us of strength and protection as long as the throne itself shall endure. Jesus added, Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice not in the possession of power, lest you lose sight of your dependence upon God. Be careful, lest self-sufficiency come in, and you work in your own strength, rather than in the spirit and strength of your master. Self is ever ready to take the credit, if any measure of success attends the work. Self is flattered and exalted, and the impression is not made upon other minds that God is all and in all. The Apostle says, When I am weak, then am I strong. When we have a realization of our weakness, we learn to depend upon a power not inherent. Nothing can take so strong a hold on the heart as the abiding sense of our responsibility to God. Nothing reaches so fully down to the deepest motives of conduct as a sense of the pardoning love of Christ. We are to come in touch with God, then we shall be imbued with his Holy Spirit that enables us to come in touch with our fellow men. Then rejoice that through Christ you have become connected with God, members of the heavenly family. While you look higher than yourself, you will have a continual sense of the weakness of humanity. The less you cherish self, the more distinct and full will be your comprehension of the excellence of your Savior. The more closely you connect yourself with the source of light and power, the greater light will be shed upon you, and the greater power will be yours to work for God. Rejoice that you are one with God, one with Christ, and with the whole family of heaven. As the seventy listened to the words of Christ, the Holy Spirit was impressing their minds with living realities and writing truth upon the tablets of the soul. Though multitudes surrounded them, they were as though shut in with God. Knowing that they had caught the inspiration of the hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. The honored men of the world, the so-called great and wise men with all their boasted wisdom, could not comprehend the character of Christ. They judged him from outward appearance, from the humiliation that came upon him as a human being. But to fishermen and publicans it had been given to see the invisible. Even the disciples failed of understanding all that Jesus desired to reveal to them, but from time to time, as they surrendered themselves to the Holy Spirit's power, their minds were illuminated. They realized that the mighty God, clad in the garb of humanity, was among them. 
Jesus rejoiced that though this knowledge was not possessed by the wise and prudent, it had been revealed to these humble men. Often as he had presented the Old Testament scriptures and showed their application to himself and his work of atonement, they had been awakened by his spirit and lifted into a heavenly atmosphere. Of the spiritual truth spoken by the prophets, they had a clearer understanding than had the original writers themselves. Hereafter they would read the Old Testament scriptures, not as the doctrines of the scribes and Pharisees, not as the utterances of wise men who were dead, but as a new revelation from God. They beheld him whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and he shall be in you. The only way in which we can gain a more perfect apprehension of truth is by keeping the heart tender and subdued by the Spirit of Christ. The soul must be cleansed from vanity and pride and vacated of all that has held it in possession, and Christ must be enthroned within. Human science is too limited to comprehend the atonement. The plan of redemption is so far-reaching that philosophy cannot explain it. It will ever remain a mystery that the most profound reasoning cannot fathom. The science of salvation cannot be explained but it can be known by experience. Only he who sees his own sinfulness can discern the preciousness of the Savior. Full of instruction were the lessons which Christ taught as he slowly made his way from Galilee toward Jerusalem. Eagerly the people listened to his words. In Perea, as in Galilee, the people were less under the control of Jewish bigotry than in Judea, and his teaching found a response in their hearts. During these last months of his ministry, many of Christ's parables were spoken. The priests and rabbis pursued him with ever-increasing bitterness, and his warnings to them he veiled in symbols. They could not mistake his meaning, yet they could find in his words nothing on which to ground an accusation against him. In the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, the self-sufficient prayer, God, I thank thee that I am not as the rest of men, stood out in sharp contrast to the penitent's plea, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Thus Christ rebuked the hypocrisy of the Jews, and under the figures of the barren fig tree and the great supper he foretold the doom about to fall upon the impenitent nation. Those who had scornfully rejected the invitation to the gospel feast heard his warning words, I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Very precious was the instruction given to the disciples. The parable of the importunate widow and the friend asking for bread at midnight gave new force to his words. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And often their wavering faith was strengthened by the memory that Christ had said, Shall not God do justice for his elect, which cry to him day and night? and he is long-suffering over them. I say unto you that he will do them justice speedily. The beautiful parable of the lost sheep Christ repeated, 
and he carried its lessons still farther as he told of the lost piece of silver and the prodigal son. The force of these lessons the disciples could not then fully appreciate, but after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as they saw the ingathering of the Gentiles and the envious anger of the Jews, they better understood the lesson of the prodigal son and could enter into the joy of Christ's words. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And as they went out in their master's name, facing reproach and poverty and persecution, they often strengthened their hearts by repeating his injunction spoken on this last journey. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Join us next time as Nancy Hamilton Myers continues her dramatized audiobook, The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen G. White. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.